We've been 34 weeks in the book of Romans. Tonight, mercy deep enough to renew your mind. The text again is Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I I view these two verses, we'll be in them for the next few Sunday nights, as kind of pivotal in understanding the Christian life and getting it off to a right start. The essential idea from last Sunday night, if you were here, was that the, the, the engine of your Christian life, the engine of your Christian life has to be delight more than sheer duty. I appeal to you, therefore, verse 1. And the therefore means on the basis of what I've been saying. So starting with chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, Paul deals with some very practical aspects on how to live the Christian life. But the book of Romans doesn't start that way, and you'd think it would. Just open up chapter 1, telling us what we're supposed to do, Paul, and we'll do it. And Paul knows, and the Holy Spirit knows, that delight is a better fuel for the Christian life than duty. And that's why those verses end with approving what is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you just base Christian living on here's what God says I have to do, the problem is you'll, you'll go in short bursts where just out of sheer willfulness, willfulness you're able to obey God. Most Christians don't think of their Christian walk as good, acceptable, perfect, and delightful. And if you don't believe me, Ask yourself, why aren't there as many people here tonight as there were this morning? Ask why you would have to expend so much effort and energy encouraging, pleading, begging people to keep going, growing with God. Why do people have to be nudged into something that the Bible says is good, perfect, wonderful, delightful? That's the issue I want to address in this in this teaching. If I'm supposed to live the Christian life properly, the first step is I have to perceive it properly. A renewed mind comes from somewhere. It doesn't come from nowhere. And so here's how this works. Point number one. The most important thing you can do to cooperate with the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, in the renewing of your mind, is to turn your mind consciously, that's the important verb there, to the mercies of God. I appeal to you by the mercies of, by the mercies of God. My appeal is based on the mercies of God. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. But that's not why I'm asking you to do it. The reason I'm asking you to do it is in view of the mercies of God. 
The therefore deals with Romans 1 through 11. And it reminds me and it reminds you that those first 11 chapters of the book of Romans aren't irrelevant doctrine. It reminds me that I can't, I can't live the Christian life properly without those things. Presenting my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. I'm not likely to do it just because somebody tells me to. Those actions need fuel to get off the ground. And the fuel is soaking, soaking your cranium in a deep understanding of the mercy of God. I don't mean, let me clarify, I don't mean experiencing the mercy of God. It's not what I'm talking about. I don't mean believing in the mercy of God. I'm not talking about that either. I'm talking about making the mercy of God an issue of fervent, passionate study. That's exactly why Paul directs his readers backwards through Romans 1 through 11 before he directs them forwards in all the activities of Romans 12, 13, 14. Even passages that don't seem to hold out mercy. If you remember back 37 weeks, you know, we were studying Romans 1 and 2 and they seem such dark, bleak chapters, just a sad tale of our sin and a rebellion against God. Why would Paul say you need to think about Romans 1 and 2 before you're ready to do the things in Romans 12? Why do I have to look back where everything is so dark and hopeless? And they're meant to be chapters that are dark and hopeless because only the truth about my actual situation my bankruptcy, my rebellion, my hopelessness. Why does Romans open like that? Well, because that sets the stage. Do you see what Paul's doing? Sets the stage for the mercy of God. It's for people like we. People who couldn't possibly earn their status before God. Had no qualifications. Had no rights. And God makes makes grace freely available through Christ. Here's here's what you get in those first 11 chapters. Look at Romans 5, 6 through 10. Is that in your notes? Okay. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. And then he says, well, maybe. Perhaps for a good person. Maybe a mother would give up her life for her son or her daughter or something like that. But God shows, verse 8, his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's why you think about the mercies of God. Since therefore, there's that word, there's that Romans 12, 1 word, therefore. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For, For if while we were enemies, this isn't a mother giving up her life for her child. This is while we were enemies it's unheard of if while we were enemies we were reconciled to god by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life there's this hope-filled news in those words never never let anybody tell you we weren't so bad apart from christ those who would try to build your esteem with false flattery do you no favor you're being cheated Let the Bible speak its own message. The worse we are without Christ, the better. 
because I was so lost, so sinful, so rebellious, so unworthy of Christ's grace when he came and died for me on the cross, I know that I need not worry now about qualifying. In view of God's mercy, present your body as a living sacrifice. That's Paul's whole point. It's the doctrine of my utter sinfulness and unworthiness before God that's the ground for my assurance of his ongoing presence, his ongoing love, his ongoing mercy. 5.10, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, much more, now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. That's where we are in this teaching. I'm urging you, therefore, in view of all his mercy, don't make duty the fuel for your Christian life. Make delight the fuel for your Christian life. Jesus tells the same kind of story, making the very same point. It's in Luke chapter 7, 37 to 47. I don't imagine I gave you that whole reference, did I? Wow. You know this story. Let me read it quick. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, everyone in the city was a sinner, but this is, a, this is an obvious kind of sinner, okay? When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. The Pharisees, don't you love them? Now the Pharisees who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, if this man, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him. She's a hooker. For she's a sinner. So they're thinking this to themselves. And then Jesus speaks out loud, 40. Jesus answering said to them out loud, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Jesus. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. This is a good question. Now, now, which of them will love him more? Isn't that a great question? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he's looking at the woman, but he's still talking to Simon, okay? Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house you gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. She's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. He who is forgiven little loves little. No one's forgiven little. Jesus is talking about how we perceive the mercy of God. If you see it as slight... Do you see this? If I see God's mercy as slight, I won't love him the way I ought. If I see God's mercy as magnificent, I will love him deeply. 
The fuel for my Christian life, when I understand God's mercy, won't just be duty, it will be, it will be love. That's where it comes from, Jesus is saying. Notice Jesus uses a decidedly non-religious person in his story to teach us something important. Something important to this highly trained, seriously devout Pharisee. Surprisingly, the Pharisee in Luke's account isn't as moved to serve Jesus as this sinful woman. And, and, and it cuts to the core of the reason Paul turns to the mercies of God as the motive for renewed minds and transformed lives. So the Pharisee, prompted by every religious rule in the book, doesn't love Jesus. The way this woman, who knows nothing about any of those laws, but senses she's weeping in the presence of Jesus. I, I don't deserve to even be here, see? She ends up getting the praise from Jesus. Point number two. The mercies of God are the antidote to the things that most frequently wear Christians out and pull Christians down. I wanted both those expressions. Wear Christians out and pull Christians down. So in reveling in the mercies of God, it renews us. Then neglecting God's mercies ages us spiritually. We age before our time. That's why we're called to renew our minds daily in the mercies of God. Renew our minds daily in the mercies of God. I was looking at Romans 15, 8, and 9. We're not, we're not there yet, but... Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jews to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in order that the Gentiles, that's us, Christ became a servant so that Gentiles like us might, notice, glorify God for his mercy. Jesus came so that we would glorify God for his mercy. That's the object of the gospel. Why, why the cross? Why did Jesus come and die? And the answer all Christians give is, well, just to forgive us. Yeah, it's true. Gloriously true. But the idea is that we would, we would end up glorifying God for his mercy. We would proclaim his mercy. It would be visible in our lives how much we love his mercy. Our thinking is affected by his mercy. The things I watch on TV is affected by his mercy. The way I give my money to missions is affected by his mercy. The way I take a class, attend a prayer meeting, sing in a group, it's all, I want to magnify his mercy. It's the fuel for presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, right? It's the fuel. It's what's in the tank that keeps the Christian life going. Minds renewed around the mercy of God. Here's where I want to wrap up. It doesn't always happen this way. Let me tell you what happens. I've seen it, you've seen it. Let me tell you what happens when Christians fuel their Christian life by a sense of um, 
scorekeeping duty. Regulation. Do A, B, C, D, E. Do it! And you'll be a holy person. And then what happens is you see people that aren't doing those things, and you will write them off. I've been around the church long enough to realize that many Christians profess the mercies of God more than they cherish the mercies of God. They profess the mercies of God more than they extend the mercy of God. And, and they will burn out spiritually. See if any of this sounds familiar. People get miffed because someone is ministering on the platform and they don't think that person has treated them fairly. People get upset because someone sees someone else raising their hands in worship and they don't think that that person was honest with them. What a hypocrite. Someone quits working with children because someone else spoke harshly to their kids. A person leaves the church because one of their friends didn't get along with one of the departmental leaders. The list is endless, and I'll tell you what is common in all of them. The mercies of God were forgotten. We get like that older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Be clear, church. If the only idea Jesus were driving home in this parable, if the only idea was the wonderful, mind-boggling grace that the father gave his prodigal son, Jesus could have told the story with only two characters, right? The wayward son goes, wastes everything, comes back, the father embraces him, end of story. That's a, that's a picture of forgiveness. Jesus tells the story with Three characters. He tells the story where inch by inch we're supposed to see ourselves. There's an older brother. So the, the theme tonight, just to get everything focused here. The mercy of God is the fuel for everything in the Christian life. And when it's forgotten, everything goes sour. Everything. Here's this older brother. And interestingly, the father in the parable has to, get this, the father has to remind the older brother of all the mercies he's been receiving all along, right? This son won't go, this older brother, he won't go into the celebration. He's not happy to see his younger brother home. He's miffed, he's angry. And the father has to say to him, you know, you were always with me. Everything I have is yours. I've been nothing but good to you all this time. Where's your head? And when I forget God's mercy toward me, the very first thing that'll happen is I won't extend it very well to others either. Let the mercy of God, therefore, in view of God's mercy, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Here's what I take that to mean. You know, there's that phrase. There's that phrase. I urge you by the mercies of God that you present yourselves. In view of God's mercy, present yourselves. So here's what I take that to be saying. Dawn, put your name there. On, never even 
try to present yourself to God, to draw near to God, to have anything to do with God, until you can't believe how unbelievably merciful he's been to you, of all people, to you. And until that's in your head, stay away from God. You don't really want anything to do with him. You'll be critical, judgmental, sour, self-righteous. And what would Jesus want with a woman like that anyway? Oh, God, help this church just to constantly be washed with a fresh love and a fresh awe at God's unbelievable mercy to each one of us. And everyone said, it's the fuel for everything. It is the fuel for everything else in the Christian life.